Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity now to look at your word. And I pray that as we do, you would speak to us. Fill me with your spirit that I might teach accurately, clearly, rightly. Fill us all with your spirit that we might hear and receive and respond to what you have for us today. Father, such important questions were asked outside that tomb. And may we think about them. Apply them to our own hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently I read a story. It was a story of, of a Muslim man from Africa. This Muslim man from Africa had decided to become a Christian and his friends asked him, why in the world would you do such a thing and how did you come to such a decision? And his answer was, he said, suppose that you're walking down a road someday and you come to a fork in the road and you don't know which way to go. What do you do? And he said, and suppose further on, that there are two men standing there, one at each of the forks of the road. One man is dead, and one man is alive. He said, I chose to follow the man who was alive. We this morning, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are here because we have decided to follow the man who is alive, and that man is Jesus. Every Sunday morning of the world, we gather together on what's called the Lord's Day, because we want to celebrate and remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Church of Jesus Christ worships on Sundays and not on Saturdays, as did the Jews originally. Because Jesus rose on Sunday, and the day of worship became Sunday. It became to be referred to as the Lord's Day in remembrance of that. But today, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday is the special Sunday. The one Sunday out of all of them that we gather together just specifically specifically because of that fact that he is alive. The tomb was empty on that first Easter Sunday. Some years ago, my wife and I were privileged to visit uh, Israel. We were privileged to visit Jerusalem. And we saw all kinds of wonderful things there. We, we wandered the streets of the old city, which in, in some respects have not changed a whole lot since the time when Jesus perhaps walked on those very places we walked. We, uh, we visited places like Jericho and uh, Megiddo, where the, the plain of Armageddon is, where the final battle will be. And, and we visited Bethlehem and Capernaum, the city in the north where Jesus spent so much of his time. Oh, wonderful things, wonderful things. Uh, we watched people get baptized in the Jordan River. We uh, spent a wonderful, tranquil afternoon floating along the Sea of Galilee in a boat. It was all good. But you know the, the best thing, the thing that sticks in my mind the most, there was two sites that we saw that once you see them, you cannot ever get them out of your mind, and that was Golgotha, Calvary, and the Garden Tomb. The Garden Tomb. Now there's some dispute about where the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ was, and to be honest, nobody really knows for sure. The Catholic Church has a, there's a, a Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which uh, is built over what Catholic people believe to be that tomb. And when you go there, that's one of the places that you tour. And it's interesting, we went down into that church. They take you down underneath of that monstrous edifice. Down into what, to me, not being critical, but what to me just looked kind of like a dungeon. We went down in there, and you get down to this very place underneath of the building, and there's this dark room. There's what appears to be a coffin there, which I certainly did not understand that at all. There it was. But that's what some people believe is the site. Maybe it is, I don't know. But there is another site which we went to, which to me seems to be much more likely. It's simply called the Garden Tomb. And it is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful place. 
As a matter of fact, the, the wonderful facsimile that Our Lady's built for us up here of the tomb is, is, is patterned after that garden tomb. If you've ever seen a picture of it, that's, that's pretty close as to what it looks like. There's a lot of things about the garden tomb that make it much more likely to me and much more uh, in, in, in keeping with what the Bible tells us about what that tomb must have been like. For one thing, it's right next to Golgotha. If we have the site of Golgotha correct, if we have the site of Calvary correct, and when you see it and you see that, that skull-like hill, you cannot help but think that must surely have been it, the place of the skull, the Bible calls it. And right next to it, they found this garden, beautiful garden. And in that garden, they found this tomb. The Bible says it was very, very near Golgotha. And so that's evidence for it. It was obviously, apparently, the tomb of a very rich man. When you look at that garden tomb, it was not something that was made for someone without means. Obviously, somebody rich filled it because it was well done, beautifully done. Interestingly, it was also apparently hastily used by someone for whom it was not designed. Because interestingly, when you walk inside of that tomb, there are two shelves there, or uh, I don't know what you would call them, places where they would have laid the body, all perfectly carved out, nice squared off corners, like a mason had done just a beautiful job of carving. But on one side, at the very end of one of those shelves, it looks like someone took a sledgehammer and a chisel and just beat a hole in the side of the wall, as if, in a very hasty fashion, they had to enlarge that, because it was for somebody that it was not originally intended to be. Very interesting. While we were there, we said there was a sign on the wall that I, I was fascinated by. I wish I would have taken, had taken a picture of the, of the sign because it listed all the tests that they have done on that particular tomb. Scientific tests that they have done, trying to determine was anybody ever buried in that tomb? Did anybody ever decay in that tomb? And the evidence is that no, nobody has ever decayed in that tomb. And so it's a very interesting place, the garden tomb. But of all the things I remember the most about that, that time that we spent there. The thing I remember the most, and I, I've told you about it before, but it always touches my heart. It always, it always is, is the main thing I remember. We had a guide there who was British, and he was going through all this presentation and telling us all these wonderful things. And as he came down to the end of his presentation, he motioned toward the empty tomb. He said, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And he pointed to that open tomb. And I know all he was doing was quoting from Matthew chapter 28. I know that. But it was in that context and standing there in front of that tomb. It was one of the most moving things that I have ever personally experienced. Because that tomb was empty. And as we stood there and we looked in through the opening, it was empty. There had never been anybody decayed in that tomb, because Jesus rose. And of course, that's the wonderful truth that we would proclaim to you this morning. He is alive. He is alive. The tomb was empty. Jesus is risen, just as he said. We read one of the accounts. Of course, all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all talk about the resurrection, but we read the one from John this morning. And I thought what we'd do today is we would just ask a few questions about this particular passage. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I ask questions, and I hope you do. Uh, certainly, when you read about this amazing supernatural event, the supernatural event of all history, surely some questions would come to your mind. So I'd like to look at a couple of questions that we might ask of this passage. And then I want us to also notice, and 
hopefully it'll be the most important part of the message this morning. I want you to notice some questions that he did ask. So those two things today. First of all, questions we might ask. The first question that comes to my mind, and the question that we oftentimes talk about at Easter time, is what happened to the stone? What happened to the stone? Our friend Shakrio saying about it this morning, day three, his body's missing, the stone was rolled away. That's what we read about in verse number one. The stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, one of the things I remember about the garden tomb, I remember very specifically the mechanism of the stone. I remember that in front of the garden tomb, and uh, I did not see that our ladies have, uh, have uh, duplicated this particular thing. They'll have to work on that next time. In front of the garden tomb, there was a trough that went along where the stone would have rolled. It was carved out of solid rock, and it was slowed so that the stone would have set in that trough and it would have rolled down over the front of the door. Prior to the time that they would have released that stone, they would have had to held it there with a wedge or something. would have had to hold it there because gravity would have taken it down and blocked that. But you know what I remember about the garden tomb? There was no stone there. Stone. Gone. I asked the guy, where's the stone? He said, nobody knows where the stone is. You notice that there's no stone in front of our facsimile this morning. And we talked a little bit before the service. Should the stone be laid over to the side? Should the stone just be rolled there and laid there? Or should it be gone? And I think actually, scripturally, it's better off if it's gone. And I, I think if you stand there and you look at it, you see it's gone. Because I, I don't believe it just rolled away. Josh McDowell uh, is an interesting apologist. He has written a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In Josh McDowell's discussion of, of the stone and these, these passages, he makes a, an interesting point, which I haven't studied out in great detail, but, but I have studied, I think he at least has, a, he has, he has some validity behind what he's saying. He says that in every one of the four gospel accounts, there's a different word used to describe the fact that that stone was rolled away. In some cases, it just means literally it was rolled away. In others, it has a little bit different nuance of meaning. Here in John... And you notice in John, it says here that the stone had been taken away from the tomb in the New King James Bible we're reading here today. And what McDowell says is that literally means, that Greek word literally means that it was picked up and carried away. It was not there because it had blown away. Because Jesus didn't just kind of give a little push and push it out of the way. When that stone went, it, it went. And so where was the stone? That was a big stone. It was massive. It was huge. I've been doing a little bit of cleanup on my property. And on my particular property, there is a great big piece of concrete that is left over from an old farmhouse that used to sit there. Interestingly, though, that piece of concrete is just about the size of the stone that was sitting in front of that door right there. And the other day I thought to myself, why, well, I think I'll just move that stone. Yeah, right. I couldn't move it an eighth of an inch. And I'm a tough guy. That's supposed to be funny. No, the fact is the stone wasn't there. And so we have to ask ourselves, what, what, what happened to the stone? What happened to the stone? Maybe like, you know, like some people today, you're, 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 you're not one who really believes in the resurrection, or you, you struggle with the supernatural aspects of it, but you have, to, you have to ask that question. The fact is the stone was rolled away. How did it get rolled away? And, and if, uh, if you really consider that, you realize that it's evidence, it's compelling, it was certainly evidence to them. Where is the stone? Another question that we might ask as we look at this, this particular account, is where were the grave clothes? Look at verses 5 through 9 in our text today. Where were the grave clothes? There are five verses here devoted to what Peter and John saw when they looked in the grave. They did not see a body. 
but they saw grave clothes. That's very interesting. Five verses devoted to that particular thing. Now remember what Mary thought. Mary thought somebody had taken the body. That's what it says in verse number two. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have laid him. In verse number 13, she still believed the same thing. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Verse number 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. Mary believed that somebody had stolen the body. But when they looked in there, and they looked in there, they didn't see a body. They saw grave clothes. That made that highly unlikely that someone had stolen the body. Matter of fact, if we're honest with ourselves, it made it impossible. What thief who is going to come and steal the body would take all the time to unwrap all of those great clothes and lie in there. They would have grabbed the body, one of the head, one of the foot, whisked it out of there, and disappeared into the night. The grave clothes were evidence that God is the one who had worked, not some man. One source that I read put it like this. He said, you see, the fact that grave clothes were still there showed this was not a human event. Only God would have left the grave clothes. John doesn't record it, but the other gospel writers record that the angel told Mary, look, you can see where he lay because the grave clothes are there. It was obvious Jesus wasn't there because the grave clothes were. And very likely they still had the same shape Jesus had. Face cloth was taken off. Remember these grave clothes were essentially strips of linen that were soaked in spices and then wrapped around and around each finger, both arms, the toes, and the feet. Every part of the body was bound up in these grave clothes. That's why when Lazarus came out of the grave, Jesus said, loose him and let him go. They had to take those grave clothes off, somewhat like removing a cast from a broken arm. So to say that the grave clothes were lying there was a significant statement. First, that would not be the way that you would do it if you were hurriedly stealing the body. And second, it gave a visible demonstration that Jesus was not there. The fact that the grave clothes were there accentuated the fact Jesus was not there. End quote. And so, I don't know, perhaps you're one that struggles with the supernatural aspects of this. Maybe you, you sit here and you smile and you nod uh, appreciatively to us silly Christians about the fact that we honestly do believe that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And you say, that's just not scientific, it's ridiculous, I can't get my head around that. You have to look at some of these questions. You have to, historically. The stone wasn't there. What happened to it? Historically, these grave clothes were there. What happened to them? How did that happen? How did it happen? Well, there's all kinds of questions that we could ask. All kinds of questions we could. Perhaps as you read the story, perhaps you see some others that jump out at you and you think, I'd like to know about this one. Uh, but for sake of time today, we're going to stop with those two. Just let them, let them work in your brain a little bit. Because I want us to concentrate this morning not on the questions we would ask, but on the questions he asked, because, you know what? He's still asking them today. He's still asking them today. Let's do a real quick fast forward right through what happened in this passage and notice what it was, and then we'll get to the questions. Notice, first of all, that Mary arrived at the tomb to discover the stone is missing, as is the body of the Lord in verse number 1. Notice that she has to run to tell Peter and John of this, assuming somebody has taken the body, as we saw a minute ago. Verse number 2. Peter and John run to the tomb. Interestingly, Peter gets laughed by John on the way. And they examine the empty tomb, finding the grave clothes lying there with the body missing. Verses 3 through 9. Peter and John, after seeing these things, do something very interesting. They turn around and go home. Did you notice that? Verse number 10. Now see, if you're like me, you're going to go right there. Watch. There's a question I want to understand. After all that happened, they just turn around and went home. We'll save that for another time. 
But it is a question, isn't it? Why would they do that? They turned around and went home. Mary, on the other hand, did not. Mary stayed. Mary wept. Mary was still looking for the missing body of Jesus. Verse number 11, she came to the, and she stooped and looked into the tomb one more time, and this time she saw two angels sitting there. One angel sitting at the head and one angel sitting at the feet of where Jesus had lain. Interestingly, she didn't seem very alarmed by this. She actually struck up a conversation with them and just talked to them. I, I don't know. Here's another one. There's another question that comes up to me. If I had been standing there, I think I'd have been mildly alarmed. Wouldn't you? If you had found yourself in the presence of two angels. I read one place, and I didn't, I didn't uh, do enough study to determine whether or not this is true or not, but one commentator said that this is probably the only place in the Bible where a human being was face-to-face with an angel and there was no evidence of fear or awe. In some places they bowed down. In Revelation, John bowed down and kept trying to worship angels. And they would say, don't do it. Don't worship me. But she, uh, she just had a conversation with him. And then, even more amazing, she turned her back on Verse number 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She's talking to two angels. Amazing. And she turns around, turns her back on I suppose there's all kinds of reasons why she might have turned her back on two angels and ignored them at that particular part of that time. It might have been that she was overwhelmed with grief. It's hard for me to imagine. I, I, I would imagine none of us can really imagine the horrible couple of days the disciples had just gone through. They had watched as Jesus, their master, their teacher, their friend, the one that they believed to be the Messiah, had been nailed to the cross. They had watched it. What a day. And then Saturday, where they cowered in fear, waiting for that same thing to happen to them. Terrible, terrible couple of days. I imagine that her emotions would have been at a fever pitch. And as a matter of fact, the word that is translated weeping in verse number 11, Mary stood outside by the tomb, Weeping, and as she wept, she stooped and looked down. That word literally means loud, racking, sobbing. Perhaps as the tears overwhelmed her, she just had to turn away from the angels. One of the church fathers had a different interpretation. John Chrysostom, who ministered in the 4th century, he, he, there's no evidence of this, but he had an interesting theory. He said, you have to imagine now that Mary has stooped down and she's looking into the tomb and two angels are facing her from within the tomb and they're looking and as she's talking to them they can see Jesus walking up behind her. And what would an angel have done in the presence of Jesus? Chrysostom says they would have bowed. They would have worshipped. And so perhaps Mary turned to look and see what the commotion was all about. I don't know. No evidence of it, but it's interesting. But she did turn. And she did see Jesus, verse number 14, standing. I almost preached the whole sermon on that verse right there. She saw Jesus standing. Hallelujah. She didn't see Jesus bashed to pieces by a Roman scourge. She didn't see Jesus every drop of blood drained from his body by crucifixion. She didn't see that. She didn't see a weak and nearly dead, beaten to death man. She saw Jesus standing. I think it's one of the great pictures in the Bible of what we worship today. But that brings us then to the two questions that I want us to finish with this morning. Two questions are in verse number 15. Do you see that? Verse number 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
When Jesus asked the first question, why are you weeping, can you imagine what her response must have been? She just heard this from the angels, and it elicited no response from her except for her to turn her back on them and look the other way. And now Jesus asked her the same question, why are you weeping? She must have thought to himself, are you nuts? She thought he was the gardener, first of all. She would not have thought Jesus was nuts. But she thought he was the gardener. So she thought to herself, is this guy off his rocker? Does he not know what's going on? How can he not know why I'm weeping? I've got to believe that was the thought that went through her mind. Were you under a rock these last couple of days? It's been terrible. They crucified Jesus, and after all that they did to him, now they've taken his body. Perhaps that was in her mind. But now let's think about the question Jesus asked, and let's think about where he is and where she is and all the context of the asking of it. He said, why are you weeping? And where is he? He's standing in front of her outside of the empty tomb. And Mary is weeping because the tomb is empty. I find that astonishing. We rejoice because the tomb is empty. She was weeping outside the empty tomb because it was. The angels had asked her the same question and Jesus repeated it now. And I, in my mind's eye, I've got to believe that as Jesus asked this question, he must have had a little smile on his face. Because he was seeing the irony of it. Mary, how could you be weeping? Look what has happened. The tomb is empty. The very fact of that empty tomb means you never need to weep again. Why are you weeping? Here's a question this morning. It's a question for all of us. Why are we weeping? What do we have to weep about? In light of what Jesus accomplished on that first Easter Sunday morning, in light of the fact that tomb was empty, we need never weep again. We look forward to a time when there will be no more tears and when there will be no more weeping. We have every reason to rejoice because that tomb was empty. The hymn writer said, Rejoice and be glad the Redeemer has come. Go look on his cradle, his cross, and his tomb. Rejoice and be glad for the Lamb that was slain or death is triumphant and live again. Why because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we look forward to a day when we'll never weep. I know we come to speed bumps in our Christian life. I know we come to times in our life when we go through trials and difficulties. We do live in a sin-sickened world. Sometimes they even loom large. Trials and tests come, troubles come, pain comes. And I, I know that some of you this past year have gone through difficult times. I know that I have wept with some of you as you have said goodbye to loved ones this year. For some of you, the weeping continues even today. Some of you are going through hard times now. Trials. Troubles. Some of us can expect weeping in the future if Jesus doesn't return first. But, but Christian, we need to imagine the smile on the face of our risen Savior as he said to her, Why are you weeping? Because all of our weeping is temporary. In light of that risen tomb. Empty tomb. In light of the risen tomb. Psalm chapter 30, verse number 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Revelation 21, verse 4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so let us consider that question today. As we think about the fact that the tomb was empty, let us hear Jesus. He's asking it about truth. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Martin Luther one time went through a period of depression. A couple of days where he was very upset about some some situation. I don't know what it was. I just know that the story goes that he was he was in a funk. He was upset. In three days he sat around his house moping. And after the third day, his wife came walking down the steps one day, and she was all dressed in black, had a black veil on, and black morning clothes on. He he looked at her and he said, "What? Who died?" And she said, "God." 
He said, what? And he rebuked his wife. He says, you're not, God cannot die. And she said, the way you've been acting lately, I would have thought he had. And you know, that's, isn't that what Jesus is saying here? We no longer have any reason to mold. We, we no longer have any reason to be upset. Or do we? Because the tomb was empty. Third, our second question that I want to share with you this morning, just, just for a moment. He said, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for, Mary? You're really looking for a broken dead man? He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Whom are you seeking? Perhaps the key to understanding Mary's confusion here is seen in verse number 14. She did not know that he was Jesus. Now, there's another question that could come up. How is that possible? I, I know that's a question. We can talk about that some other time. But for now, we'll just accept the Bible at face value. She didn't know it was Jesus. She thought he was a gardener. And so here she is standing face to face with the risen Lord, and she doesn't know who he is. She did not know him. She had come to the garden to do something. Jesus didn't care about that. He didn't want her to do something. He wanted her to meet somebody. Because that was the key to it all. And that is the key to it all. This Christianity thing, it's not about doing something. I know there's a lot of people who believe that when we get to heaven someday, when we stand before God someday, He's going to have this giant scale. You've all heard this, and perhaps some of you even believe this. He's going to have this giant scale, and He's going to take all of our good works that we've worked on through our life, and He's going to put them on one side, and all the bad things that we've done, He's going to put them on the other. And as long as that good side outweighs the bad side, we're in. That's what a lot of people believe, but that is not what the Bible teaches. It's not about doing something good. Not by works of righteousness, the Bible says. By grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works. There's nothing you can do. Mary, there's nothing you can do. It's about meeting somebody. It's about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so he looked at her and he said, Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? You know why so many lives are so messed up today? You know why so many people are living such unfulfilled lives today? It's because so many people don't know him. So many people don't. I just, I just read this past week about, I'm sure you read it too, about a group of girls at a McDonald's restaurant bashing another girl half to death in the restaurant. Did you read about that? And we look at things like that and we say, how can it be? How can our world be such a terrible place? How can such things happen? It's because they do not know him. So many do not know him. It's difficult to read the newspapers these days because of the seemingly unending litany of terrible news. How can people do such things to each other? Do we not think that as we read? I can hardly stand to read the news anymore. How can such wickedness happen in the world? And the answer is because so many don't know him. And the amazing thing is, he's not hard to find. He's not hiding himself from us. He was standing right in front of Mary. He was right there all the time. Who are you seeking? Mary. And he asked the same question to all of us today. Who are you seeking? And so on Easter of 2011, we who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and I count myself in that number, we cannot help but rejoice. Well, the fact that tomb was empty, can we? We're going we're gonna to live forever. We're going to die no never, as the spiritual songwriter said. We have the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. It's glorious. All because we know him all because of that we never weep again. But I wonder this morning, and I won't, I won't make this long, but I wonder this morning, what about you? What about you? There are some who only show up here on Easter. And I thank God that you show up here on Easter. I do not mean to belittle the fact that you're here. I thank God you're here. But what about you? 
I only get one crack at you once a year. What about you? Do you know him? Do you know him? How would you answer the two questions Jesus asks of you this morning? Why are you weeping? And who are you seeking? Do you know him this morning? Do you know him? If you don't, if you have questions about these things, if you're one of those ones who does think about your soul and does wonder whether or not someday you're going to be with the Lord when you die, we would love to help you with that. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. And when we sing that song, we're going to give you the opportunity to respond. We won't belabor it. We won't embarrass anybody. But if you don't know, we want you to. We want to help you. That you can know him. I'm going to close today with a testimony of a modern day Mary Magdalene. Her name was Deb. That's all I know about her. Pastor John Piper in Minneapolis posted this particular story, this particular testimony, and he simply entitled it Deb's Story. Let me read it to you and then I'll be done. Deb said, I grew up in an atheist home. I never went to Sunday school. We never went to church. And I lived life on my own terms without any reference to God. I lurched from one disastrous relationship to another, looking for love in all the wrong places. And when I was 30, I got involved with a guy who was five years younger than myself. When I found out he was doing heroin, instead of leaving him, I started taking heroin as well. That began an 18-month ordeal as I tried to come off the drug. But it is incredibly addictive, and life just went from bad to worse. I was staying at a friend's house, and I remember rummaging around in the drawers for some matches because one way of taking heroin is to light a bit of it and inhale the fumes. It's called chasing the dragon. And while looking for the matches, I found a little Gideon New Testament. And while high on heroin, I started reading this little New Testament. I'd never read the Bible before, and I just read there that I was in real trouble. But there was a living God to whom I owed an account for my life, this life that I had just trashed. And suddenly I realized I, I couldn't commit suicide. Life was a living hell, but death meant facing him, and I was too scared to do that. I saw in the Bible that I was in real trouble with a real God. I didn't know who Jesus was, but I knew I had to get to a church. And so I went to a church service on Good Friday. I remember sitting right at the back of the church near the door, ready to make a quick getaway. But then they started reading from the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus' crucifixion, and I just sobbed. Because what I heard was that he had died on the cross for me. That all the things I had done and the punishment that was coming my way, he had taken on the cross. And when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I realized it was for me that he was forsaken. He had taken my forsakenness and I just sobbed. I burst into tears. He'd done that for me so that I could be not forsaken. And I just knew that I was God's. I was sobbing. Absolutely sobbing. I don't know what people thought, but I didn't really care. Because I walked out of there knowing that God is my Father, and life has just changed from that moment on. That was nine years ago, and as I look back over the time that I've been a Christian, God has changed me from the inside out. Where before I lived life for myself and on my own terms, I see now that there's real freedom and real joy in living for God and on His terms. I love Him with all my heart and my soul and my strength, and I love others, and for me... That's what makes life worth living. And I can't thank him enough for what he's done for me. Mary didn't know him. Dad didn't know him. They both came to know him. And you can too. That's the gift of Easter. Don't miss it. Father,
you so much for the word of God. Lord, I pray today that we'll think of all the questions that were asked outside of that tomb. Where would we be? There may be some here today, Lord, who are going through difficulties and trials. Maybe their heart is broken over something in their life. I pray today, Father, that they would be encouraged to know that because of all that Jesus accomplished there, with that empty tomb, weeping is but a temporary thing for the believer. I pray their faith would be increased. Their heart would be encouraged. They would rejoice in all that that empty tomb means to them. And Lord, whom are you seeking? There may be some here today, Lord, who have never really answered that question properly. They don't really know for certain whether or not they're on the way to heaven. They've never really called out and asked you to be the Savior and Lord of their life. Father, if there's even one like that, I pray that this very day, this very moment, this Easter, will be the last Easter that they walk into a church as a lost person. May they walk out today saved. Father, as we sing, I pray you'd help people to respond to your word, respond to that empty tomb. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take our songbooks, turn to number 488. We're just going to sing two verses of an invitation hymn this morning. We do this here at Friendship Bible Church because we want to give people an opportunity to respond. It's not meant to embarrass anybody. It's just meant to help you. And so I'll be standing down here at the front. If anybody needs to come and pray, if you want to come and talk about the peace faith, can you come? Because we're just two verses of number 488. Let's all stand as we do.